right? So maybe some of you, maybe some of you who are older, although I've, I've heard that maybe this show has uh, regained attention in recent years, but maybe this little ditty um, is familiar to you. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Is there somebody singing with me? Okay. Taking a break from all your worries. I don't know if this is the right key or not. Um, sure it would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. I'm trying to hurry because I don't want to subject you to this. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Right? Okay. Cheers. So really popular TV show. <laughs> no, that's definitely not in order. Okay, so um, this show was in the 90s, I think. I didn't really watch it. Not really even encouraging you to go watch it. But, um, but I think that kind of sentiment certainly resonates even if you've never seen the show, never heard the ditty, whatever. And sadly, I think many people find more significant community at a local bar than they do at the local church. Or at a gym than at a local church. Or online in a gaming community than at the local church. Or fill in the blank. So sometimes that's because they're looking for something other than what Jesus offers. Okay, fair enough. Sometimes that's because they're expecting everything to be done for them and they're not, there's not enough proactivity, you know, on their part to really get connected. But sometimes it's because the church has not been the kind of loving community that we ought to be. So this series, as we walk through our purpose statement and our values, said it each week, it's both actual and aspirational, okay? So this is our purpose statement. We exist to reflect God's infinite worth. We sung about it, right? He's worthy of every song that we could sing. There's no more glorious, beautiful, worthy being in all the universe. We exist to reflect, to image forth. Like he's the sun, we're the moon. We, we reflect his light, his love, his worth to the world around us. Reflect that infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. And then the way that that gets fleshed out is three values, gospel, community, and mission. So how do we show forth the beauty, the glory, the goodness, the worth of God? It's only through Christ. So the gospel is the first value. We can only be forgiven of our sin, reconciled to God, made new from the inside out by the grace of Jesus so that we can love like we were intended to love. We can live sacrificially and servant-hearted lives for others like we were intended to. And then that gospel creates a kind of community. And it also sends us out on mission. So that's next week, okay? But this morning, it's, our focus is on our second value, community. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Last few weeks, we've had a single text in the book of 1 Peter 
um, kind of be our focus and our guide. This morning, we're going to look at several texts in 1 Peter under the banner of the kind of community the gospel creates. So we're still in 1 Peter, but this isn't kind of typical, but we're going to look at actually five different passages. Um, we should be out of here by about 3.30. Is everybody just set? No, I'm kidding. Um, so anyway, all right. First point, first text. The gospel creates loving, lasting community. Chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1014. So the gospel creates, again, what kind of community does the gospel create? Well, it creates loving, lasting community. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So what kind of community does the gospel create? We're called to love one another earnestly, a kind of community where there's earnest love, not fake love, not veneer, you know, facade love, but earnest love from a pure heart. So that word earnestly was actually used back in Luke 22. Remember, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to the cross, and he's in agony, and he prayed earnestly. You know, sweat drops of blood. So this is like real deal, you know, from the heart type love. So I want you to think about the reasoning here. We're going to do this in each of these passages. We need to think through the reasoning. And we need to figure out how it is that the gospel creates this kind of community. So what's the logic here? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since or because you've been born again of imperishable seed through the enduring good news word of God. Okay, that's kind of the big picture reasoning here in verses 22 to 25. Here's the point. Why does he go on to say, love one another earnestly from a pure heart because you've been born again of this, he likens the word of God to seed that falls in our hearts, takes root, and bears fruit. And it lasts, it's imperishable, right? So the logic is, it's in the nature of the new life you have to love. Like, you are a new creation in Christ. You were born again to a living hope. And that new life that you've been given by the grace of God, if you're a Christian, like, before Christ, we're all spiritually dead, cut off from God. Our sin separates us from God. The only way to be reconciled to God, we can't save ourselves. Jesus had to come and die for our sins, to pay our debt, so that we could be reconciled to God. So when you turn from your sin, you realize you're, you can't save yourself, you need Jesus to atone for your sins, forgive your sins, cleanse you from all that, you know, dirt and mess. You turn from your sins, you trust in Jesus, all we bring to the table is need. He takes our sin, we receive his righteousness and the reconciliation with God. And we have new life. You're made alive together with Christ, saved by grace, right? 
So that new life is the life of God in the soul of a man or a woman. And what's the nature? God is love. So it's real love, not fake. This is a sincere desire planted in us for the well-being. I mean, obviously, we, we want to love God, and we want to love our neighbor now. We desire, we have new desires with this new life. We desire the well-being. We desire the best interest of our brothers and sisters. Doesn't mean we're always going to love perfectly. None of us will. Doesn't mean we're always going to naturally love everyone that crosses our path. It does mean that we're going to sincerely fight the unloving impulses when they arise. Which is why it makes sense that Peter, in chapter two, just a few verses later, says this. So, if you're gonna love one another earnestly from a pure heart, put away all the malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You see that stuff crop up, you say, oh, Lord, get it out of here. It's gonna get in the way of me loving as you want me to love. So just let me paint two scenarios here. So-and-so in your community group, or, I mean, if you're not in a community group, get in a community group. Um, come talk to me afterwards. You can visit a few and, and land in one. Um, but let's say so-and-so in your community group or in our church as a whole just rubs you the wrong way. I know, it's a hard hypothetical to imagine actually being the case. Um, you just don't really like this person. Certain things about them, I mean, you just kind of want to avoid them. Or just somebody's hard to love for whatever reason, you just kind of want to run the other way. So two options here, right? Do you fake a smile? do or say something, you know, in a kind of a token or fake kind manner. But then you walk away and you kind of roll your eyes internally. Maybe even you criticize them internally. And then you breathe a sigh of relief that you made it past that situation. Or do you pray for grace and seek to do or say something kind like for real. And when the desire to roll your eyes internally or criticize, cut them up internally wells up, you shut it down. And you remind yourself that he or she is loved by God and redeemed by the same precious blood that's redeemed you. And you remind yourself that, you know what? You're certainly not always the most lovely or lovable person on planet Earth. And you want to treat others as you would want to be treated, not fake patronizing love. Who appreciates that? No hands. Okay, good. Um, but sincere Christ-like love. So do you see the kind of community that the gospel creates? That's the kind of community that we're after. It's actual, but it's also aspirational because we all know that, like, I don't like this person. I don't want to. Or we know the fake love thing, and we can role play pretty well. So if you only love, listen, if you and I, we only love the easy to love people, you don't need any, super, you don't need any supernatural grace for that. You don't even need a gospel for that. Even the pagans can do that. 
So we want blood-bought grace and love filling us up and enabling us. Man, Jesus said you, you could even love your enemies with this kind of love. And certainly the hard to love brothers and sisters. So Lord, help us, right? Actual but aspirational. Okay, back to the line of thought. Well, actually one quick quote here before we are back to the line of thought. Matthew Smethurst wrote this. Guard us, Lord, from being Christians who love to learn but hate to change. Ouch. Sometimes we mask our unwillingness to change and kind of baptize it by our continued desire to learn. Look at how good of a Christian I am because I'm just always wanting to learn. And what you're doing is you're kind of trying to push down the ways in which God wants you to change. Back to the line of thought. Okay, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth truth for a sincere brotherly love, like that's what salvation and heart change, that's, like, that's what we're aiming at. That's what it's for. Then live it. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Quoting Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So again, this is predicated on being born again. We looked at that last week when we looked at chapter one, verses three to nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we've been made new, given a new heart which has a new nature, right? The nature of that nature is it's loving. So let us love earnestly from a pure heart. That's the kind of new heart you have and that's the kind of life we want to live. So earnest and enduring because this is imperishable seed. It lasts. So love like this is the fruit of the seed of the gospel in our soul growing up and being born. Loving, lasting um, fruit. Not cold, not detached, not indifferent. It's the fruit of the spirit, right? So fish are made to swim. Christians are made to love. Redeemed humans are made to love. A couple quotes here before we move on to the second thing that the gospel creates. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. Um, many of you probably have heard of him. So he stood against Hitler when many in the church in Germany capitulated. Um, he stood against Hitler, and he ended up losing his life for it. And um, he wrote a book called Life Together, and he wrote this. Sin demands to have a man or woman by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And then he says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself 
become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and superficial. So you see there's two different directions that we can be led astray and thus not contribute to the cultivation of this loving community, earnestly loving community. We can hide because of our sin. Sin is antisocial. Or we can just have this, well, the, the church should be like this, and oh, look at this messy church. It's so pathetic. And you just stand here and criticize it rather than saying, well, I'm not perfect either, and I'm going to get my hands dirty to make it better. We all need grace. So what, is, what kind of community does the gospel create? It creates this kind of community that is loving and lasting. Second, gospel creates a worshiping community. Brian read this passage briefly, verses four and five. Look there with me, chapter two, verses four and five. As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so he's using the temple image to describe the church, the people of God. So Jesus is the living stone. He's the cornerstone. Everything else gets set off of that primary um, foundational role and person. And then we, like living stones, are being built up. Well, why are we being built up into a spiritual house? To be a holy priesthood. To do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices? Well, sacrifices that are acceptable to God, praising him, honoring him, thanking him, and obeying him. Those are all spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, and they're acceptable through Jesus Christ. So we come in the name of, of Jesus. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence if we are in Christ, because he's our sympathetic high priest, and he has given us reconciliation with the Father, and we can come and expect to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. So what kind of community does the gospel create? A worshiping community. Do you see the reasoning here? We, the people of God, being built into a spiritual living temple. The church isn't a building. It's a body of people. God doesn't dwell in a temple structure somewhere in the Middle East or somewhere in America. He dwells in his people individually by his spirit and corporately by his spirit. So that's how we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. You know, like Romans 12, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Worship is a 24-7 thing. It's not just a Sunday morning from 10.30 to 12 thing. So how does this happen? It happens by the power of the gospel. Like, okay, how do you know that? So it's the gospel that creates this kind of worshiping community. Where do you get that idea? Well, look at the text again. Look at the bookends. As you come to him, we're being built up. Do you see that? And then look at how it ends in verse six. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, that's Jesus, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So as you believe in Jesus, as you come to Jesus, we are being built up into the worshiping community God intends us to be. 
the gospel, coming by faith to Jesus for his blood-bought grace builds us into a worshiping community. God is glorified, he's honored and magnified. We are so thankful that once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Once we were not a people, now we're God's people, and so we proclaim his excellencies, you see? So by his grace, we become a worshiping community. And others see and hear us proclaim those excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love this quote by Ray Ortland Jr. He says this, as you come to him, quoting verse four, Peter introduces his teaching about the church by saying, as you come to him. We don't come to church to be a church. We come to Christ and then we are built up as a church. If we come to church just to be with one another, one another is all we'll get. And it isn't enough. Inevitably, our hearts will grow empty and then angry. If we put community first, we will destroy community. But if we come to Christ first and submit ourselves to him and draw life from him, community gets traction. Again, the gospel creates a worshiping community. That Ortland quote reminds me of a quote I love by A.W. Tozer. Um, It's probably been several years since I've quoted this, but I've quoted it before. He says this in The Pursuit of God. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and higher life. The gospel creates an authentically worshiping community. The gospel also, thirdly, creates a beautiful countercultural community. This one's gonna be the longest one, just giving you a heads up. The last one's gonna be really quick because we're gonna run out of time, I'm sure. Um, So chapter three, verses eight and nine. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, so let's ponder this one a little bit. Three, eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. On what? Like on who, who we went to win the Super Bowl? No. Thankfully, no. It's okay. Although those birds are flying. Okay on whether the toilet paper should go on with the lead edge, you know, over the top or from underneath? No. Even though it's obvious that it should be from the top. Thank you. I see that hand. Um, We need to have unity, unity of mind, around the most important things, around the gospel and our purpose as God's people and what's most important, a common faith and a common ethical system, like living out that faith. So 
this is what actually makes it possible for there to be a unified diversity in the body of Christ because our, our kind of ethnic or other diverse backgrounds don't keep us from being unified because Jesus is more important than all of those other things. All those things can be wonderful and beautiful, but they're not ultimate. So a shared commitment to Christ and a shared commitment to God's word is the reason there can be unity among such diverse people. So all of us, we need to actually actively seek unity of mind and not let the like minutia, the peripheral things get in the way of that unity. Next description, sympathy. I think we all know what this is. It's what helps you weep with those who weep. It's what leads you to move toward a need or a hurting person and offer your willingness to bear their burdens with them. So you can see what kind of community does the gospel create. If it's a community that's full of unity of mind and sympathy, man, that is so much more beautiful than strife and fraction, or factions and fractured relationships and coldness. Let's keep going. Brotherly love. Sounds familiar, right? We just looked at that. He said it in 122 to 25. So he's repeating the importance of love here. Remember it under the first point? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Next one, tender heart. A tender heart. Man, I don't think there could be too much of this in a church. Instead of coldness, aloofness, Instead of keeping your distance, people who are tenderhearted move, like they're moved by love and compassion as they relate to the people in their life. So listen, um, this word is kind of a curious one because it actually refers to your guts. This is what happens when your viscera is redeemed. Yeah, I'm talking about holy guts. Okay, so what in the world are you talking about? So you know what a visceral reaction is, right? It's an instinctive gut level bodily response to a stimulus or experience. Wow, what if that was redeemed? What if the gospel changed even your gut level responses? So that when you saw something, some person that was in need had a burden you just, you didn't have to think about it. You just, your heart goes out to them. You love them from your guts. You're concerned about them from your guts, okay? Tenderhearted. And then a humble mind. So not thinking too highly of ourselves. Christ-like mindset. In fact, this is the key to the first description. A humble mind is key to a unified mind. So if we have a Christ-like humble mind, we will tend to have unity of mind. Just like that Tozer quote, right? All tuned to the single fork. Like tuning fork. You know what I'm talking about, not like you eat your food with. Everybody with me? Okay, great. So... Let's keep going. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
and, and this is echoing all kinds of Old Testament stuff like Abraham, remember he was, God blessed him, but not so that he could just be a cul-de-sac. He was to be a conduit of blessing. I'm gonna bless you that in you, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Psalm 67, bless us that we may be a blessing. So you go through this list and you're like, man, oh, 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 like, ah. Can be a little overwhelming. Remember, values are actual and aspirational. And even the aspiration, certainly repentance glorifies God where we've fallen short and the aspiration to grow also glorifies God and will ultimately benefit others as we seek more of his grace to become what he wants us to be, right? We want the right things. We're aiming at the right things. We're heading in the right direction. So remember what John Newton said? I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I am not what I will be but I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So actual, aspirational. He also said, this can be encouraging in the midst of this where there's maybe lots of conviction and we feel like we've fallen so short. Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom. I think the point of that is mushrooms grow quickly. I'm no mushroom farmer. Can anyone confirm this? Yes? Okay, thank you. All right. Um, the growth of a mushroom is not like a mu- <laughs> the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly indeed, but surely. So how does the gospel tie in here? And how does the gospel create this kind of community? Again, let's look at the reasoning here. We're gonna have to pay a little closer attention. But did you notice that phrase in verse nine? For to this you were called. You were called to live like this. Like, this is the kind of beautiful countercultural community that you were called to cultivate. But this phrase, to this you were called, is also stated up in chapter 2. Look up there at 221. It's in the context of 16 to 25, and there's a lot in there, but there's a lot about how we ought, like how we're called to live, you know, living as servants of God, willing to suffer for righteousness. And it says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing. This is a grace thing. God's grace is at work in you. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. But the text goes on. It's not just his example. The gospel is not do better. It's all ultimately enabled by his work, by his rescue. Look down at verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So again, back to the text. Here's the progression. You were called and rescued by the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you've been healed. He came to seek and save his lost sheep. He sought us and rescued us, brought us home to himself as members of his flock. So we follow him. He's our shepherd. His example in his loving steps we follow. To this we have been called by grace. So the gospel creates this kind of community. Beautiful, countercultural community. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Just hear it all together. 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You zoom back a little bit. Isn't this crazy and wonderful? We are blessed by the grace of the gospel to be a blessing, to inherit a blessing, to obtain a blessing. Like, how well have we been treated by God? He blesses us so we can be a blessing that we and others may obtain a blessing. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we should proclaim them. Amen? So let me just give a few examples of how important this kind of beautiful countercultural community is. There's a guy named Jonathan Charks. Okay, he's a former sports writer at The Ringer. I don't know if anybody ever reads that. It's a typical sports um, online site. And he actually died at 34. Maybe hold off on that for one second because um, everybody's going to read that. Um, so he had a Ewings-like sarcoma and he wrote this powerful article in March of last year. Okay, so The Ringer is not a Christian, you know, sports writing website or whatever, but they posted this thing. Um, so he actually sadly passed away in September. So he wrote the article in March, died in September. He was 34. Didn't grow up as a Christian. Became a Christian a few years ago. And he wrote this. I can't imagine not being in a life group. Okay, we call them community groups. His church called them life groups at this point. Human beings aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd. It's like the song from Cheers. There you go. Okay. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And then he wrote this. Life group is a different kind of insurance. People talk a lot about medical insurance and life insurance when you get sick, but relational insurance is far more important. I didn't need my dad's money, but I could have used some of his friends. That's why Shirley Booker didn't die alone. She had relational insurance. The love of these ladies back here. Many of you know Wayne and Alice Ho. About 10 years ago, they moved here from China to Delaware after Wayne's brush with death. I mean, it was miraculous that he did not die of multiple myeloma. But even though he survived, when they moved here, I remember a conversation with him very early on. He said, I'm, we're looking for a church that can care for Alice and the kids when I'm gone. Because he didn't know if he was gonna be gone in a year, two years. It's 10 years later, praise God, and they ended up moving up to Pennsylvania so they're not here with us anymore. But that's exactly how they viewed the local church is this kind of relational insurance. So the gospel creates that kind of community so that we can live well together and help each other die well together. So this goes for the whole church family. It certainly also goes at a deeper level. It's lived out in community groups, the family within the family. Because we can't care for everybody deeply. We're all limited, right? So remember, actual and aspirational. We all have responsibility to seek to add to the beauty of this beautiful countercultural community that God seeks to create.
by the power of the gospel. Number four, the gospel creates a forgive and serve. I told you that was the longest one. The gospel creates a forgive and serve one another in love community. Look at chapter four, verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, hey, time to get serious. But here's the the, uh, main part of it, verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Just in case we didn't get it the first two times he said it. Keep loving one another earnestly. Same word as 122, earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay. How does the gospel create this kind of community? Should be pretty clear. How has God, what's God done with our sins? Man, he has covered a multitude of sins. So there's a question I think we'd all do well to ponder this morning and periodically. How many sins have you covered this past week? this past month, this past year? Or are you one that is inclined to get angry at every slight and keep a record of those wrongs? Familiar with Proverbs 19, 11? Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Why? Because if you overlook an offense, You are like the moon to the sun. God is, oh my, how he overlooks and doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. And when you do that, you are a reflection of his character. So listen, how many people do you know who've left churches because someone snubbed them or sinned against them or said something insensitive to them or didn't say hi or whatever? How many of you maybe have left the church over such things? Sometimes those offenses are actually only merely perceived. They're not even real. They weren't intended. Sometimes they were real. Listen, are we surprised or irreversibly offended when we actually sin against each other in the church? Should we be? And I'm not saying, like, eh, it doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. It's okay, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about sweeping, like, real patterns and, and, you know, toxicity under the rug or whatever. But what I'm saying is, hey, we're all sinners. We're going to disappoint, frustrate, annoy, sin against each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. Aren't you glad that love covered a multitude of your sins? Should that have any kind of gospel reflex in the church? And if it doesn't, what kind of community does that create? But if it does, oh, what kind of community does that create? A forgiving, gracious, benefit of the doubt, forbearing, long-suffering community? What if, what if we pump that into the air here? I think, I think I probably all a little inclined to begrudge and even become embittered by how much sin we've had to cover. But what if we humbly and quietly saw it as a gospel glory? Isn't that what good parents do? Especially with rebellious teenagers? 
Isn't that a sign of deep love and maturity? You love, you keep loving the one who hurts you. You move toward them and absorb the blows and love them through it. You become a gospel shock absorber. Aspirational, Lord, raise up an army of such people. This is the kind of community that the gospel can create, the gospel should create. Next piece, hospitality. Sorry, this is like conviction central here, okay? I know. But when we get humbled with our need, God gives grace to the humble. (laughs) So this is a good thing. Like, grace is on the way. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Welcome your brothers and sisters into your hearts and into your homes without grumbling. It's pretty practical, pretty important. Anyone ever had people over? And man, some of those people just seem to stay longer than what you were thinking. And how do you react when you finally shut the door behind them? That matters. And I think we're all guilty. How about when somebody spills something, stains your carpet, their children break something that you actually care about? Grumbling can lead to guarding. retreating, withdrawing, trying to save your life and your comfort and your stuff. And if everybody in a church adopts that posture, it will kill the vitality of the community. So how's God treated us? Oh, how hospitable is God? And we've been like bulls in a china shop. (laughs) We've been like toddlers at the table making all kinds of mess, but he keeps loving us and welcoming us in. And the more that we soak our souls in that gospel grace, it's gonna have reflex in the church in the way that we welcome one another into our lives and into our homes. Final aspect of this text, and I'm trying to go quick here, but I'm still over. Oh, well. Um, Shirley, okay, I'm gonna, this is for Shirley today. If I ever apologize for going too long, which I, I need to work at that, but anyway. I actually have, lately it's been okay, but um, if I ever apologize, she would like literally chide me. She'd be like, she, she'd just rebuke me, which is good. Anyway, we could all learn from Shirley. Um, so where am I? Uh, okay, so the, the last aspect of this, number four, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So serving gifts, speaking gifts. It's helpful categories. It's not exhaustive, but pretty comprehensive. So if you're in Christ, the Spirit has given you gift or gifts. And as 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 make clear, those gifts are given for a purpose to build up the body. So you've been given grace from God to build up the church of God for the glory of God and the good of others. So are you using that gift to serve others. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't selfishly save your life, your time, your energy. You're a steward. God gave it to you and he gave it to you not for you, but for others. So if you have a speaking gift, that could be teaching, preaching, evangelism, counseling, mentoring, encouragement, perhaps even prayer, then speak the very oracles of God. Like speak with his voice. Be a mouthpiece for the great God who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim those excellencies 
and edify your brothers and sisters with God's truth. If it's a serving gift, you're probably a doer, right? Sometimes doers are spring-loaded to do in their own strength. It's easier for you to be like Martha than Mary. So hear this word from Peter. He's using his speaking gift to edify you right here. Serve by the strength God supplies. You need his strength, not just your own. You need to abide in Jesus, for apart from him you can do nothing. You can't bear fruit, and it won't last unless you depend on him, seek his strength, so that in everything, he gets the glory, not you. If it's in your own strength, then you're, yeah, I did that. The giver of the strength gets the glory. If you run on your own steam, you'll easily start to get cranky when other people aren't keeping the same hours as you aren't sacrificing as much as you, but if you're running on God's strength, how can you be proud or self-pitying when any good that you do, any pace that you keep is only by God's grace? Give her the strength, gets the glory. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. This is the kind of community the gospel creates and we all have responsibility here. The BD Annual Wheelay says it like this, deep community or fellowship cannot be produced by one person. The pastor can preach community, and he should, but they cannot produce community. The community produces community or not. The, I'm sorry, the community produces community or not. It takes all of us to love all of us. Amen? So I'm gonna just skip number five. You can look at the passage yourself. It's five, five to 12, but it's amazing that Peter puts humility and militancy together. Usually those are like you know, opposites, right? But instead, it's together. So it's just like an encouragement to ponder that one yourself. See in chapter five how the gospel creates humble, fighting the right battles type community. And we're gonna actually close with a song that strikes those notes, all right? So I'm gonna close with a quote, and then I'm gonna pray quickly, and then we're gonna sing O Church Arise um, before we're done. So J. Gresham Machen was an American theologian in the early 20th century. Um, he was a professor of New Testament at Princeton before it really took a liberal turn. So this is like back in the early 1900s. And he led an effort to resist that slide into theological liberalism and he eventually founded Westminster, which is like an hour north of us, right? Um, as a more orthodox alternative. So here's what he wrote. <clears throat> Whatever the solution there may be, one thing is clear. There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brothers and sisters. One hears much, it is true, about Christian union and harmony and cooperation, but the union that is meant is often a forced union of machinery and committees. How different is the true unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations, even in the present age of conflict, that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. But such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. 
Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God. And sad indeed is the heart of the one who has come seeking peace. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where we can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house, will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Oh, Lord, do it here. The seeds of that sweetness you've already sown, and we bless your name for where the beauty is already present. And we aspire, we long to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Build your kingdom here. Shape your people so that those who come in among us get a taste of heaven's glory. For the sake of your great name we pray in Jesus' name, amen.